21, <coughs> Acts chapter 21, well really we're going to start on chapter 22 tonight, but re- reading with the last verse of chapter 21. So really if you want to go to Acts chapter 22, and we'll back up one last verse there. Uh, Paul, we talked last time as we're going through the book of Acts here, has had a very rough time in Jerusalem. In chapter 21 we see that he went through a needless Jewish ceremony with four other Jewish men in the temple to try to appease and placate the Judaizers, uh, which did not work. It really never works to try to appease criticizing complainers. And so uh, when he came out of the temple, some people recognized Paul with these four men, and a mob formed, and people began chanting, uh, Jewish lives matter, if you really want to. Basically, that's about what was going on there. So uh, they were... They were uh, chanting against Paul. They were uh, making this big fuss because they assumed, uh, just assumed, it wasn't the truth, but they assumed that Paul had taken some Gentiles into the temple. And so they were all upset. And this mob now begins to form around him and they began to beat him. Uh, the soldiers show up and, and uh, they, as they do with mobs, with the riot gear, break it up, break it up. And they get them all calmed down and then they arrest, they arrest Paul the one they were beating, not the ones that were beating him. And they arrest Paul, and not only is Paul arrested for a crime he doesn't commit, then he becomes a victim of mistaken identity. Uh, This uh, we see in the latter part of chapter 21 here. And so now tonight we're going to look at what happens after this when Paul uh, gives his speech and gives his testimony here uh, in his own defense. Uh, No one is there to defend him. Nobody is speaking up for Paul. And so Paul defends himself. I want to start reading in verse number 40 of chapter 21. And when he had given him license, Paul stood on the stairs, beckoned with the hand unto the people. And when there was made great silence, he spake unto them in the Hebrew tongue, saying, Men, brethren, and fathers, hear ye my defense, which I make now unto you. And when they heard that he spoke in the Hebrew tongue to them, they kept the more silence, and he saith, I am verily a man, which am a Jew, born in Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, yet brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, and taught according to the perfect manner of the law of the fathers, and was zealous toward God, as ye all are this day. And I persecuted this way unto the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. And also the high priest doth bear me witness, and all the estate of the elders, from whom also I received letters unto the brethren, and went to Damascus, to bring them which were there bound unto Jerusalem for to be punished. And it came to pass that as I made my journey, and was come nigh unto Damascus about noon, suddenly there shone from heaven a great light round about me, fell to the ground, and heard a voice saying unto me, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? You know, This is a testimony of what happened in Acts chapter 9. And I answered, Who art thou, Lord? And he said unto me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom thou persecutest. Now we're going to look at some more verses as we go, but I'm going to stop there for now, and we'll begin to unpack this passage as we preach tonight on the pro se litigant. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. I pray you'd help us in the next few minutes as we look at a great example of how Paul handled an angry mob and giving his testimony, trying to still promote the cause of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. It's called a proceeding pro se. That means you are representing yourself in court, 
Hope you never have to. Hope you don't have to get somebody else to represent you. But uh, it is a practice that some people decide they can do better or they can't afford a lawyer or whatever, so they decide they're going to represent themselves in a court of law. You know the old saying, man who represents himself has an idiot for a client. Uh, that's what uh, they say anyway. But uh, this is, uh, it, when you do that, you are called the pro se litigant. And this was Paul on this day. Nobody is defending him, so he does so himself. He is his own here pro se litigant. And he does so, interestingly enough, by giving his testimony of what Jesus Christ did in his life. I really think this is important for us to grasp because in the middle of a dangerous time in Paul's life, we're going to see it even gets hairier here later in this chapter, it's a very dangerous time in his life, and rather than <coughs> beg for mercy, rather than make excuses, Paul is still preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he's doing so by virtue of his own testimony. Look at uh, verse 40, you see that he had their instant attention. With his hand, he just beckoned with his hand unto the people. I don't know, something like this probably, or trying to quiet them down. And, uh, they, and there was made a great silence. Paul's sudden appearance on top of the stairs there, his confident gesture, it obviously silenced them. That's what the Bible says here. The noise died down. Then you'd hear, you know, less and less voices and, until there was not a sound in the room. Uh, there is no stillness so remarkable as uh, the hush of a big crowd when just before it has been making lots of noise. You ever been in a situation like that? And then the crowd gets very silent. It's just a, a hush that fills. This says a lot for the power, influence, confidence, and presence of Paul uh, that he could, with just a gesture of a hand that, uh, to a crowd that was maddened in hatred against him, would all quiet down. Now, it wouldn't last, but Paul... Paul capitalized on. So with his hand, and then also look at his humility. Verse 1 of chapter 22, Men, brethren, and fathers, hear my defense, which I make now unto you. He knew better than to begin with an inflammatory statement. He did not go on a tirade. He did not uh, go, you know, start to speak in his own defense or tell them that it's not fair how you're treating me, what you're saying about me is not true. He's not going that route at all. Uh, he is uh, speaking to them calmly. I think of the words of Solomon in Proverbs 15.1, a soft answer turn up with the way wrath. You ever seen that or done that? It's amazing when somebody is in your face or angry for some reason or another and you give them a soft answer and it does turn away wrath. It immediately lets the air out of the balloon, so to speak. And so that's what Paul was doing here. He began with a respectful appeal to their reason and their sense of fair play. He identified himself with them, men, brethren, and fathers. And uh, he called them those names and asked to speak in his own defense. So with his hand, he quieted them. We see his humility there. Then also his Hebrew, verse 2. When they heard that he spake in the Hebrew tongue to them, they kept the more silence, and he saith. So Paul spoke to them in the common vernacular of the Middle East, which is Aramaic. And in Paul's day, the Westerners spoke Greek, the Easterners uh, spoke Aramaic, which is a related language of Hebrew. Hebrew itself was already a dead language, kind of like like Latin is today, but we still use Latin, especially the hoity-toity educated high up people will often still use Latin. And so Paul knew this, he was educated enough to know Hebrew, like uh, some of the Jews in the courtyard would have understood him, and they would have been, of course, very impressed if he'd have spoke 
Hebrew, but Paul wanted to capture the crowd, and so he spoke in the common vernacular. We're always more ready to listen uh, when people talk to us in the language that we learn on our mother's knee. And so this was what Paul was doing here. He had their instant attention we saw. He also had their interested attention. Look at verse number 3. I am verily a man which am a Jew born in Tarsus, a city in Cilicia. He identified himself as a Jew, especially particularly of the Jewish dispersion. And this would have endeared the goodwill of the Hellenistic Jews in the audience. I'm kind of breaking this down because, uh, Paul, if you take a little time and examine how Paul dealt with people, uh, it's amazing how diplomatic he was and how good he was. He did not, in fact, we'll see in a minute, he never compromised the truth, but he knew how to talk uh, to get them to listen to what he had to say. Uh, he said, talked about being bred in a Jewish fold, yet brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel and taught according to the perfect matter of the law of the fathers. He shrewdly disarmed the hostility in the minds of the Hebrew intellectuals. So in case there were intellectuals out there that thought they were so much better or smarter than Paul, he reminds them where he learned. He gives them his credentials. And Paul had credentials when it came to education. He was taught by the feet of Gamaliel, which was one of the uh, greatest intellectuals of the day, the greatest teachers of the day. So, in his opening statement, Paul allied himself with both Jewish factions in the ground, uh, in the crowd, Hellenist and Hebrew. And it was very smart of him to do so. He identified himself to, as a trained rabbi, a man schooled in the law, and also as a Jew born in Tarsus there. And he was just... Uh, establishing his connection with them. Bred in a Jewish fold, also bold for the Jewish faith. Look at verse 4. And I persecuted this way unto the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. And uh, then he also calls the high priest as witness. And all the state of the elders, those whom I received letters unto the brethren. Some of these people were a part of those different uh, search warrants he had and arrest warrants. And so he said, they can tell you how zealous I was. He was dealing here with things that could be verified. Before he was saved, he was, been a, he was a persecutor of the church. He was an agent of the Sanhedrin. His prime mission was to stamp out Christianity. And anyone in the crowd acquainted with the facts knew this about him, knew this to be true. Who in all that congregation was as zealous as, for the law as Paul had been, or Saul at that time? Who had so thoroughly demonstrated their zeal for the law, uh, for the uh, for the religion that they now were giving him a hard time for abandoning. Uh, Saul had been Osama bin Laden with a PhD when he was hunting down Christians. Judaism had controlled his life. He had been a Hebrew of Hebrews. He had been zealous to the point of persecuting the church. But something happened to change and transform his life. Where Judaism no longer controlled him, he had found something else to live for. And he talks now in verse 6 about that happening. A light from heaven. As it came to pass, as I made my journey, it was come nigh into Damascus about noon, and suddenly there arose or shone from heaven a great light round about me. It was high noon. The sun was blazing. But like a candle, you ever seen a candle in a dark room? And it kind of lights up the room, but if you take a candle outside in the bright sunshine, it does nothing it does to light anything up. That was the sun in, the, in this light here. Uh, this light suddenly shone brightly around him. 
the sun paled before this light. What was this light? I believe it's the same light that tells us about in Revelation 22.5, where the Bible says, New Jerusalem, they don't need candle nor light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light. I think that's the light this was. This is the light that fell on uh, about Saul and the Damascus Road. This is the light that should be reflected in our Christian life. The Bible tells us in Matthew 5.14, Ye are the light of the world. A, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. We are the light of the world. Really, uh, the reason we are the light of the world is because we show people Jesus, or we should. Because Jesus said in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. And he that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. I, I think we ought to live our lives, I think the best way to look at it is the sun and moon principle. Ever looked at the moon, especially when it's full, and how bright it is? You know, the moon gives off no light. None at all. It just reflects. Looks bright, though, doesn't it? It's really the kind of principle that we are, we are to be Christians reflecting the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's how we ought to live. And not only the light from heaven, he talks about the Lord from heaven. Verse 7, And I fell onto the ground and heard a voice saying unto me, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And I answered, Who art thou, Lord? Now this is important wording. And he said unto me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom thou persecutest. The Lord from heaven. That's how Paul describes Jesus. This was Paul's view of Jesus. As far as we know, we don't know, no, but we, as far as we know, Jesus and Paul never met. Uh, Paul never met the Jesus that walked on the earth. So Paul only knew him as the Lord from heaven. Who art thou, Lord? He asked, and the voice answered, I am Jesus of Nazareth. This title, Jesus of Nazareth, appears seven times in the book of Acts, beginning with Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, verse 22. The Lord from heaven described himself to Saul by the very name so despised by the Jews. This is important, especially as Saul is telling, or Paul now is telling this story. Remember, he is talking to a crowd who hates the idea that he's preaching to Gentiles. They want Judaism to be uh, alive and well. They want to, circumcision to be alive and well. They want uh, the law to be observed. And so this is the type of crowd he's speaking to and that. By that way, they hate Jesus. And now Paul's using that uh, testimony that he said, Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, many reflected the question that was asked in John 1.46. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's what they thought about Jesus. Ah, yes, the Lord of glory came from Nazareth, Jesus Christ himself. As always happens, when we get a good glimpse of Jesus and who he is, our natural response is what Isaiah's was in Isaiah 6. Woe is me. And that's really what happened to Saul here. Now, all of a second, in an instant, Saul recognized the absolute folly of his whole life's mission. And the guilt and the shame devastated him. There in that moment, while he's on the road to Damascus, Saul of Tarsus exchange Judaism for Jesus. And now he's telling them about this. He talks about his first step, verse 10. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said unto me, arise, go to Damascus, and there it shall be told of thee the things which are appointed for thee to do. And when I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of them that were with me, I came to Damascus. His whole life lay in ruins about him, Saul was smart enough to know that there could be no peaceful coexistence between Judaism and Christianity. 
we could stop there and spend some time because this is so important. Christianity and religion, they don't mix. You've got to choose one or the other. This is one of the reasons why I'm careful. We, we, I believe in, in, uh, in ecclesiastical separation. And so there's a certain limit I have to the fellowship that we have with other churches as, as uh, in, in our city we live in. We get invited sometimes to take part through the ministerial association of different things in, in town. And, and uh, I'm careful along those lines because somebody that preaches a different gospel, Paul, he didn't really mince words about that. He said that let them be accursed. And so and we're not going to go around and say that and write signs and picket them you know, or anything, but that's uh, that we're not supposed to look at religion as a friend or a brother. And so Saul recognized this immediately. He knew enough to know that there could not be an, a coexistence of these two. He saw the incompatibility of the two belief systems. So either Judaism was right and Christianity was absolute apostasy, or Christianity was right and Judaism was obsolete. So initially, he was mistaken about which one he held on to. But after this trip, uh, to after this instance here on the road to Damascus, uh, he, uh, he changed his mind completely. He, even before he changed from Christianity, or to Christianity from Judaism, he did have one right uh, idea. You can't mix the two. Saul's beliefs and his background drove him to a head-on confrontation with Christianity. Now, Jesus was dead. He couldn't do anything about Jesus, but he could take on Christianity, and that he did with a vengeance. He had been obsessed with persecuting the church of the one before he now knew that, that he now knew was the Lord of heaven. Think about that again in his, in his, uh, this all had to happen just instantaneously as he's hearing what Jesus said. That moment also sealed in Paul's mind the indisputable link between Christ and the church. How? Well, he, he did not hear, why persecutest thou them? So why persecutest thou me? Who was Paul persecuting? He was persecuting the church. So there instantly again, uh, his theology had to be changed. And all he could say, what shall I do, Lord? That's all he could say, at realizing uh, who he was talking to. Immediately, he found that the Lord had a plan for his life. The full scope of that plan uh, was, uh, was not revealed right away, uh, but the next step was made clear. He was supposed to go to Damascus and wait for further instruction and direction. By the way, that's how it is for us many times in our life too. It would be nice. It probably wouldn't, but sometimes we think it would be nice. Lord, if I could just get a road map of my 25-year plan. If I could just know what's down the road. Uh, I don't think we'd want to know, but, but uh, at any rate, we can't. We don't know. Sometimes all we get is just the next step. That's why the Bible tells us that word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Uh, you've, I'm sure, heard before, but they, uh, rather than carrying flashlights, they would put lamps on their feet, uh, and this is what it was referring to, and it would light their next step or maybe just a couple of steps in front of them and and that's all the Word of God is sometimes. Sometimes it just lights our next step. If we're faithful here, God will give us the next place to go and the next thing to do. We just need to be faithful where we know. Take the next step. You might not know God's will for your entire life, but I bet you have an idea what the next step is. Just take the next step. and Let God work as you go. 
This should be the automatic response we have to the Lord. What shall I do, Lord? In this day of consumer Christianity, that seems to be what it is all about. What God can do for me. What you offer me. I just had a call this week uh, from a lady that uh, was checking out different churches. And, and uh, what do you have? You know, do you, It was going down the list, which is fine. I love getting calls about getting interviewed about our church. That's a great thing. Uh, but there was, it was just interesting to me the way people look at churches today. What do you offer for me here? What do you offer for me there? Uh, do you have a, a youth group? Do you have this? Do you have that? And uh, people are approach church kind of like consumers today. And so this consumer type of Christianity, it focuses more on me than it does what I can do for Christ. To, to uh, quote Democratic president, ask not what your, well, it's not a direct quote. It's a little bit different, but ask not what your church can do for you. Ask what you can do for your church. Amen. And, uh, but I'm convinced that this type of church shopping, which is what consumer Christians do, they church shop. And I think I'm convinced it kills disciples. It's not about where God wants people. It's what best fits their life and what best helps them and gives them the most. I, uh, you know, I've got nothing against churches offering different things, but uh, pick a church, join their mission, stick to it. Don't, uh, don't make it all about what it can do for you and your family. Give yourself, uh, give of yourself uh, into the church. Don't get offended that easily. Make it about Christ. By the way, if you make your whole life and service about the Lord Jesus Christ, you're not going to get offended easily. It's just not going to happen. We get offended when our focus is inward. We don't get offended when our focus is upward. We get offended when we're focused on what, and, and that again, that goes back to consumer Christianity. I'm actually working on a message, and I don't want to give it all away, consumer Christianity versus contributing Christianity. And so uh, that's something we'll look at in the future. But uh, stop asking, what can all the church do for you? And ask what you can do for your neighbors and your friends and the lost world around you. That's all I'm saying. We ought to be contributing more than we are consumers. So, here's Saul. He's physically blinded, but he's spiritually enlightened, being, head, being led into the city. There he has several days to reevaluate his entire life. You have to stop and imagine what a thunderbolt this would be in Paul's life. Everything he believed, everything he lived for, everything he had studied, it was all upturned in a single moment. When Jesus said, why persecutest thou me? And when he, re he realized that he was the Lord. That changed everything in Saul's life. Paul's next steps, verse 12. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good report of all the Jews which dwelt there, came unto me and said, uh, stood and said unto me, Brother Saul, receive thy sight. In the same hour I looked up upon him. The last thing Saul had seen was the bright light of Christ. The next thing he saw was the face of a Christian. He had seen the head, now he sees a member of the body. And this is the first person he saw, Ananias, a Jew in Damascus, impeccable reputation had come to him. By the way, that in itself is a miracle right there. I don't think we throw enough credit to Ananias. Messages ought to be preached about Ananias. Who would go to someone that probably nobody else wanted to have anything to do with? I mean, would you want to? Think about Saul, the murderer, the one that throws people in prison, the one that tortures people and, 
and uh, separates families. And now he says, oh, uh, I'm a Christian now. Would you want to go and deal with Saul? I don't think anybody... Now, in fact, we see that later when the apostles wanted nothing to do with him until Barnabas got involved. But uh, here's Ananias coming to Saul, the great persecutor of the church. Not only that, calls him Brother Saul. Boy, they thought they'd never hear those two words together. Brother Saul. It's interesting that, uh, he. by the way, then he did a miracle and restored his sight, but it's interesting that Paul did not describe Ananias as a Christian to this audience he's talking to here. Look at how he describes him. A devout man according to the law. I think that's interesting. This, this is very diplomatic, the way Paul is talking. And so he described him as a Jew whose good name was beyond reproach. He was a Jew that, because of his relationship with Jesus Christ, would not hesitate to call his bitterest enemy Brother Saul. That's what Jesus Christ can do in the hearts of his children. What a blessing. Verse 14, and he said, The God of our fathers has chosen me, that thou shouldest know his will, and see the just one, and shouldest hear the voice of his mouth. For thou shalt be his witness unto all men of what thou hast seen and heard. As he had persecuted Jesus, now he would proclaim Jesus. He was to be a witness. A witness is not an attorney. A witness is simply someone who testifies what he has seen and heard, which is exactly what Paul is doing now to this crowd, this hostile crowd. This was to be Paul's life work. He was to bear witness to, of that to all men, not just the Jews. Paul was getting here the beginnings of his call to evangelize the Gentile world. Now, at this point in his testimony, Paul moved very cautiously because he only knew too well the prejudice of the crowd he's talking to. He made clear that his commission was given to him by a devout, law-keeping Jew respected by all. But he's going to move very carefully. We're in verse 16 now, Acts 22, 16. And now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized. This is still Ananias talking to Saul. And wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Lest that confuses us in the wording, baptism would publicly identify him with the Lord and his people. Calling on the name of the Lord would remove his guilt and sin. That's the way that verse is read. So Paul's devotion here, we see in verse 17, it came to pass that when I was come again to Jerusalem, even while I prayed in the temple, I was in a trance. And uh, it talks about that, his experience. Uh, he described uh, to the crowd of the temple court. It had happened there while he prayed. Now he comes to a very critical point. He knows that this people has a hatred for all things Gentile. He knows their pride. It would have been safe, much safer, for Paul, much more politically convenient for Paul to uh, make some patriotic remark about the temple or to talk about his own love for all things Jewish or maybe to beg the, their pardon for misunderstandings that had arisen. Safer maybe, but not the whole truth. And Paul was not a coward. He did not compromise. He gave uh, the truth with the courage of a man who had seen or heard the voice of Jesus and he took the plunge. Verse 18. And he saw and saw him saying unto me, Make haste and get thee quickly out of Jerusalem, for they will not receive thy testimony concerning me. Concerning me. Right after he was saved, Paul began to witness, just like Stephen had before him, to Greek-speaking Jews. He attracted to himself the same hatred that they had once felt for Stephen. But God had other plans for Paul. He wasn't going to let him die at the beginning of his new life. 
And so he was told, they will not receive thy testimony concerning me. They might perhaps receive the testimony of others, but Paul was a very polarizing figure. God's purpose was clear at this point. Get out of Jerusalem and quickly. Verse 19. We work on through here. And I said, Lord, and I said, Lord, they know that I imprisoned and beat in every synagogue them that believed on thee. And when the blood of the martyr Stephen was shed, I was also standing by and consenting on his death and kept the raiment of them that slew him. Here's Paul making reference to his past career as a persecutor of the church. He's reminding his listeners of the part he played in Stephen's martyrdom. What's he trying to do there? I think what he's trying to do is make them realize if he was that much of a zealot, if he was that committed to Judaism, something really big had to happen to change his mind and make him what he is today. He wants them to see that uh, conversion that he had. Paul hoped for understanding hearts. He is out of luck, because with his next words, the storm broke. Look, verse 21. And he said unto me, Depart, for I will send thee far hence. I just picture a pause here. Unto the Gentiles. Woo, the crowd went nuts. Look what it says. And they gave him audience, and the word lifted up their voices and said, Away with such a fellow. Paul said, Jerusalem's no mission field for him. God had told him so. His field was the world the Gentile world, the very people that the Jews looked on as dogs would be his sheep. That's who he's going for. If Paul had their interest and attention, he now had their infuriated attention. And we're going to look at that more next week, but what lesson can we take from this? Uh, it's it's uh, imperative for us. A lost world will not always appreciate our testimony. In fact, sometimes you'll receive criticism, you receive hostility. Stay true to your message. That's what Paul did. It'll make an impact. And of course, it did wherever Paul went. <coughs> Secondly, I think, uh, if, if I would have been in Paul's situation, we talked last week, or about the, or a couple weeks, about the horrible day that Paul had in chapter 21. Everything just kept going south for Paul. Uh, how would I have defended myself? I don't know that the first thing that comes to mind is, I know, I'll give him my salvation testimony. But that's exactly what Paul did. And that is a very important thing for us to do as well. We ought to constantly be sharing our testimony with others. Your testimony has a particular power for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's so valuable that infomercials, you ever watch infomercials? I love infomercials. They're so entertaining. They're so fake. I, the, how the people, ah, it is so fake. It's like if you take all the washouts from Hollywood who can't cut it as an actor, I know, we'll put you in an infomercial because you can't act. That's kind of how they come across. But uh, one thing they know, one thing they do, not a paid actor, actual testimonies of successful users. It has an impact. It's powerful. Hey, if something works... And you've got Susie Q from Iowa here telling us how good it works for her, then that's going to make an impact. It'll do the same for Susie Q who speaks about how the Lord changed her life. Amen? And so let us use our testimony for that. Uh, if the world's got it figured out, we certainly can use it. And uh, we'll see next week how it affected how, how Paul, what it did for him here, and some hostility that he went through. The Lord's still going to use it. Lord, thank you.